This is episode 52 of Cinescope, and there's a great, big, beautiful tomorrow, just a dream away. Welcome to Cinescope, where our goal is not to criticize or to assign ratings, but rather to celebrate the movies we love, exploring story, characters, music, and relevance to the world around us. I'm your host, Chad Hopkins, and joining me today are Will Dodson and Wendell Jones to talk about one of our favorite films, Tomorrowland. How are you two doing tonight? Doing excellent. Thank you so much for inviting us on your one-year anniversary show. That's such an honor. Yeah, congratulations. Very happy to be here. Let's crack open the champagne. Where is it? (laughs) (laughs) Coming afterwards. (laughs) Uh, Okay. (laughs) Thank you guys so much for being back and thank you for the congrats. It's hard to believe that this is episode 52, 52 straight weeks of releasing full episodes, which is insane to think about. It's hard to believe that I was first releasing the show a whole year ago. Uh, so thank you guys for being back and for being on this episode and thank you to the listeners for sure for continuing to listen all this time and being supportive and uh, give me a reason to do this every week because I get a lot out of it just me talking about movies because it's something I love to do but I don't think I would have kept up with it without a loyal listener base so thank you all how about you guys introduce yourselves real quick before we actually get into our discussion so will how about you first Okay, well, I am uh, Will. <laughs> uh, I am a composer. Hi, Will. And, hey, what's up? <laughs> I'm a composer, and I am the uh, senior producer of SideshowSoundTheater.com, which I co-founded with this fine gentleman, Wendell Jones, about five years ago. And yeah, that's basically my life. <laughs> okay, now what about you, Wendell? Yeah, so I am one of the other founding fathers of Sideshow. Uh, and yeah, if you were talking to Sideshow on social media, that's me. Hello, don't be shy. Come and say hello to us. And <laughs> if you love uh, love soundtracks, then we are the guys to talk to. Yes. Yes, I've been listening to you guys since the fall of 2014, which is not too long after you guys launched, I think. And so I've been listening for a very long time. I was excited to get you guys involved. In fact, you guys were involved in the very beginnings of Cinescope. When, before we even launched episode zero, I was talking to you guys and getting feedback on the theme song because you guys are composers. And so I, I was, uh, it's been a collaborative process from the very beginning, getting you guys involved. And of course, Will, I talked with you and Ian about Lincoln back in episode five. And Wendell, I had you on not too long ago to talk about Monty Python. So... Me? <laughs> yes. <laughs> and uh, it, it's just great to have you guys both on at the same time this time around to talk about what is a very special movie to Cinescope, which I'll get into in just a moment. Before we do that, I just want to remind everybody we're announcing the big giveaway winners announcement today at the end of the episode. Stick around and I will say who won the movies that we've been talking about and hyping up. So stick around for that. Are you guys ready to talk about Tomorrowland? Yes. Yeah, let's do this. Okay, so this movie was released on May 22nd of 2015. It was directed by one of my favorites, Brad Bird, who also directed The Iron Giant, The Incredibles, Ratatouille, Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol, and The Incredibles 2 upcoming in the next year or two, I think 2019, Uh, very soon. The movie was written by Bird and also Damon Lindelof. The music here is by Michael Giacchino, 
and it has come to my attention that this is the first time we've talked about Michael Giacchino on this show somehow. Uh, so I'm going to read through quite a long list of films that he has composed for because I couldn't bring myself to leave out any of these. So Michael Giacchino also scored The Incredibles, Sky High, Mission Impossible 3, Ratatouille, Cloverfield, Speed Racer, Star Trek, Up, Cars 2, Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol, John Carter, Star Trek Into Darkness, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, Jupiter Ascending, Inside Out, Zootopia, Star Trek Beyond, Doctor Strange, Rogue One, A Star Wars Story, Spider-Man Homecoming, War for the Planet of the Apes, and is set to compose the scores for the upcoming Pixar film Coco, as well as The Incredibles 2. It's insane looking at this guy's filmography. He has literally touched every single imaginable property. This guy puts out work like no other composer does today. It's unbelievable. I, I mean, just looking at that list, it's it's crazy. And, you know, a weird statistic about Michael Giacchino is he has actually come on and, and, and taken themes from popular franchises more than any other composer in history. You've got him taking over Jurassic Park, obviously Star Trek, Star Wars now, uh, Speed Racer, you could probably count in that, Mission Impossible. I mean, he's adapted other composers' work more than any other composer, so... That alone is very impressive and done an amazing job nine times out of ten. So, yeah, he's a master. Yeah, for sure. And just looking at that list, 16 of those films that I listed were released in the last seven years. So he is an (laughs) absolute machine. The movie stars Britt Robertson, George Clooney, Rafi Cassidy, Hugh Laurie, Tim McGraw, Catherine Hahn, and Keegan-Michael Key. So... You guys first. What was your first experience with Tomorrowland? Wendell, how about you go first? Well, I didn't get to see this in uh, theaters, sadly, and that was a big mistake. <laughs> I didn't really know what to expect on, ver- on first viewing when I did eventually see it, but whatever expectation I did have was just absolutely blown out of the water. Um, you know, at first I remember thinking, what is this? the rocketeer hitchhikers um you know there's so much originality in every part of this film the performances were amazing i love the cast i love the world building gkino score um it's such a mishmash of genres that i think there's something for everyone and it's one film that i'm not really afraid to show in front of anyone family friends whoever it is it's just one of those that seems to run the gamut and appeal to a lot of people so i enjoyed the hell out of it i have watched it many times since then and every single repeat viewing it has grown on me massively there's always something new to take out of it and uh, that's why i love it so much awesome what about you will well my my experience with it actually started in uh around october 2013 i was actually at walt disney world with jesse nelson who is uh, one of our co-hosts and has been on this show actually before um and around the time we were at the magic kingdom there were rumblings that they'd actually been to the magic kingdom to film some scenes which i guess turned out to be the small world sequence while we were there we were like are we gonna see like you know brad bird running around or george clooney or maybe even hugh laurie because at that point we didn't know what his role was but alas we did not see any of those people um but i was so excited about this film brad bird is such a, a unicorn of a director i guess for, for lack of a better word i mean the guy has directed, what, six films at this point? I'm, I'm not even sure if I'm counting that correctly. He did The Iron Giant. He did The Incredibles, Ratatouille, the fourth Mission Impossible film, and then this. I mean, so what? That, that's five five films. It's incredible. He has not whiffed yet on anything he's done. 
the weird thing for me is the first time I saw it, I liked it, but it didn't really impact me all that much. I think there's a lot to chew on in this movie, and I think it really requires a few different viewings of it to sort of take everything in. But like Wendell said, every subsequent viewing of this film, the film has actually gotten better and better and more interesting. Being someone who was born in Central Florida, the first act of this film is just kind of like a, a geek out fest for me. I mean, going to, you know, the, her going to Kennedy Space Center. I mean, that's the real launch pad that they launched real space shuttles from. They really filmed there. Of course, by the time they filmed this, they had stopped uh, launching space shuttles about a year prior. So, but it was still standing, and they got to literally go and play on it, and you know, actually set their cameras up and and do a lot of fun shenanigans there. So that was really cool. Of course, the the uh, the New York World's Fair sequence was really incredible if you're a vintage Disney freak like I am. And, of course, Small World and seeing that, that trap door kind of appear out of nowhere. I mean, that's just – it's such a cool intro to this movie. And the the acting, oh, my God, so many powerhouse performances. George Clooney especially. I mean, he sort of steps away from the Danny Ocean, like, coolest guy in the room archetype that he's so known for. He's really cranky and almost – codgery in this film and i love that because he really sells it and you really understand why as the film goes on i mean he he really has a right to feel that way Britt robertson she has to carry the film and i think she does i mean the, the the weight of the entire film is on her and and she really delivers a very convincing performance and doesn't really i think at any point you know betray the fact that she's someone in her mid-20s i mean she really seems like a 15 year old kid the entire movie and that's not easy to do for anybody and the scores we'll get into is amazing. Um, it's just, it's a beautiful movie. I, I get more out of it, like I said, every time I watch it. You know, the the themes in the, in the movie, not the musical themes, but the actual story themes are a little heavy-handed, but I think it works really well, and, and I just feel hopeful by the end of the, of the movie every single time. So that's my initial reaction to it. I love it very much. <laughs> Something tells me you liked it, yeah. <laughs> I liked it quite a bit, yeah. <laughs> My first experience was actually pretty similar to you, Will. I was following this project from way back when Bird was first attached, and it was still called 1952, and we didn't have any idea what it was, except for I think George Clooney was attached pretty early on as well. And so because it was a Brad Bird film, and I adored his previous filmography up to this point, I was so excited for this movie. And I did see it in theaters with my friend Seth, and I liked it. But again, like you, Will, I wasn't especially blown away with it at the time i liked it and i i defended it because it didn't get the the overwhelming reception that people sort of expected it to being a brad bird film because of that i've i've still championed it ever since it came out two years ago the first time i rewatched it was just over a year ago at this point that was my second viewing and i absolutely fell in love with this movie i laughed i i cheered and i i, I wept to be frank, it, it just had such a profound effect of me, on me. And I was so frustrated with how this movie I enjoyed so much and took so much away from was so poorly received. And it made me angry. I went on like a, a sort of tweet rant that night. And the very next day, I thought of Cinescope. And I wanted to take a positive look at the films I enjoy rather than tearing them down unnecessarily because yes, films have flaws. This is not a perfect film. Hardly any movie we've talked about on Cinescope, if any film we've talked about has been perfect, but you know, we talk about the things we love nonetheless because there are always things to love. And so Tomorrowland, the reason we're talking about it for a one year anniversary is because this movie is why Cinescope exists. 
because I've seen it three times ever at this point. Today was my third viewing and it still had such a profound effect to me. This isn't a movie that I've rewatched over and over and over again, though I think I could. It In so few viewings, it has made such a big impact on the way I view film criticism now. It was just like a switch. And I thought, you know, I don't want to tear down movies anymore. I don't want to uh, look at films and point out everything that's wrong with it. I want to do just the opposite. I want to look at movies and I want to point out everything I do like about it and everything that it does well because there's somebody on the other side of this movie who worked hard and put everything they had into it. And so, yeah, that, that's that's what this movie, in a nutshell, just to throw that out there, this movie is why Cinescope exists and that's why we're talking about it today. Uh, the origins of Cinescope. Well, let's go ahead and let's just talk about the story more in depth. Um, so what is it about the story that you guys enjoy here? Well, I think the biggest thing, actually, to kind of latch on to what you said, um, um, you know, just speaking about the positives, I think it's it's generally it's its vision of optimism that I like most. I think I, everyone knows this, you know, there has been maybe a trend and certainly in European cinema to, to go to the, the darker, more grittier side of things. And, it, you know, films have become a little more oppressive, maybe, and pessimistic over the years. So it, it, it is nice to just get, along with Marvel as well, it's nice to get a, a big, heavy jolt of, of optimism and, and, and swallow that down. And I think that's what that this film gave me in terms of uh, story. Um, it's actually something that I like most about Disney in general and really it's the whole freaking reason why I enjoy Star Trek as much as I do too you know Gene Roddenberry's real positive vision of the future so that aspect of it that Brad Burr brought to this was something that I, I think appealed to me at a time when a lot of films weren't so I really enjoyed that I I did enjoy the um obviously all the the uh, technology that's included in this film i love those kind of um uh, hoverboards you see that double up as suitcases just before casey gets on the train i love the swimming pools well that's a that that is a long uh, ladder climb to start those uh, dives again but still <laughs> i just love all the technology in this film i thought that in terms of and i'm sure it's something that we'll get into later regarding the characters but something that i enjoyed a lot with the story was really just the relationship between Casey and, and Frank that that was quite appealing to me and, and even 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 more so uh, Athena and Frank that that relationship is is probably one of my favorite most favorite relationships in recent years um again I I, I will come on to that later but yeah in terms of story just the the whole optimistic vibe which I don't think that uh, a lot of films can pull off very well, but having, as Will described earlier, you know, a, a more cranky character in Frank really, really helped sell uh, Casey's, you know, whole life purpose and, and, and what she believes in. So that's what I, uh, that's what attracted to me most of all about this story. I, I love the arc that, that George Clooney's character goes on in the film. I mean, you see him as he as he starts, you know, the film starts, he's a young child. And what he, in fact, he kind of echoes what Casey will later be, you know, uh, later on in the film. And so that's kind of nice. It kind of pre-echoes the journey she's going to go on. But the interesting thing is we see him start that journey and then have it basically slap him right in the face. And, and he takes one direction and she takes another. And, and when they meet, they're both on, on two very separate arcs that kind of started from the same place, you know, which is a... a a place of, you know, anything is possible. And, and if you believe anything's possible, that's, that's a great way to live your life. And 
we see with Frank how having that blow up in your face, so to speak, leads to this outcome. And with Casey, she's too young and sort of, I guess, inexperienced to realize that that, that could be a potential outcome. She doesn't know what she doesn't know, so she's just wide-eyed and optimistic for the most part of the of the first act. So I really enjoyed that. And I and I again I can't say enough about George Clooney and, and his his performance. I mean he really goes all in with this character. And like I said, there's always a sort of and I'm not trying to pigeonhole, you know, George Clooney at all, but there's always a sort of hint of Danny Ocean in everything he does now, where he's the the cool guy, the sort of real cultured dude. It doesn't matter if he's playing, you know, the character he played in Up in the Air or even some of his darker films, you know, he's always the smartest, most charming guy in the room. And in this film, he is definitely anything but that. I mean, he's life has kind of just worn him down. And, you know, he's he's obviously brilliant. He's a brilliant inventor. And we've seen that his understanding of, of technology and how to, you know, use it to his benefit has grown leaps and bounds in his adult life. But it, even the employment of that is really pessimistic because his entire house is like this fortress that's, you know, nigh impregnable because he's got these laser things and he's got like this, I don't even know what that gun is at his front door that like shocks you into, or, you know, blasts you into the ground. The, the, the pit bull, that's a hologram. All that stuff is amazing. But the application of all of it is simply to protect him from a force that he, I guess, expects to come for him at some point. And so that's kind of sad. You know, there's a lot you can kind of glean from that when we're reintroduced to him. I mean, all, all of this technology is simply there for less than, you know, less than optimistic wide-eyed means. And I think that's really interesting. And we see his character go on an arc from there that I, I find very satisfying because he does, you know, return to that place he was when he was a child, the place he was at when he was a kid. And I, and I think that's, that's really earned by the end of the movie. And it's why I kind of leave the movie with such a smile on my face because, you know, this guy came around. And that's great because we we saw we were we were shown every reason why he shouldn't come around, you know, and, and yet he does at the end of the movie, and and he's a big force for change with her, with Britt Robertson's character Casey at the end of the movie. So, yeah, it just, the story's wonderful. I mean, and and it doesn't even hit you on that level until you've watched it two or three times, and that's the other thing that's really great about it. I mean, it's layered, so layered. The action set pieces are also there for a reason. They don't seem like you've seen them a hundred times before. That's one hallmark of of Brad Bird. You know, he's always doing something inventive. And this entire movie is just inventive. It's just so amazing. <laughs> I love it, man. And and uh, I'm sure when I watch it again, probably tomorrow, I'll find five or six things that I didn't even realize, you know, I loved about it. And it's just really great. Really, really great. Did either of you happen to watch this on Blu-ray with the plus ultra animated short at the beginning? Yes. <laughs> I did that yesterday, in fact. Awesome. W Wendell, have you seen that short? I have not, no. I, I really do have to. Okay, well, it's only about three minutes and 15 seconds long, if I remember correctly. And what it basically is, is a commercial for Tomorrowland. It's as if instead of getting a pin, you were all shuffled into a room and you watched this video instead, which explains the origins of Tomorrowland and why it exists. So it, it explains more in depth some stuff we get in the film which is the fact that Edison, Eiffel, Verne, and Tesla create this sort of super group bent on championing progress and innovation and imagination. And Tomorrowland itself is a place to create free of money or government or politics or power or any of those kind of things. It's all about learning and knowledge for the sake of learning and knowledge. And so just the concept of Tomorrowland as a place within this world uh, is really fascinating to me because it's not 
people who are creating to seek an end for uh, uh, a method of mass destruction or trying to fulfill some sort of money-making scheme or anything like that. It's all just about pure creation. In fact, when, when Frank first arrives, he sees these robot things that are actually building these giant strands of DNA, and one of them takes control of his jetpack and fixes it. And so these are machines and beings that are created to create, which is so cool. And I just love that, that, that concept of Tomorrowland itself. And beyond that, the the framing device of the movie, where you have Casey and Frank, at the beginning, you don't know they're talking to anybody within the world. You you perceive it as them talking to you. And they have a message about our future. And we've got to do something about our future, or it's not going to be a very happy place. And it, it's I just love that framing device, because then at the end of the film, we realize that these people that they're actually talking to are more basically Athena replicas and they are fulfilling her original purpose, which is to seek out other people. But it's still something that we can apply to our own lives. So just the the framing device of it at the very beginning of the film, it, it almost gives the rest of the movie a bit of weight. It, it lets us know, hey, this is important because this is a message for you about your future. And I, I think that's really cool. It is very unique. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. And it, it also, when it's revealed at the end that they're actually talking to the replicas, it's it flips the entire thing on its head, but you can still apply the same feeling that you got when you thought they were talking to us at the beginning of the movie. And that's the cool thing about it. There's a nice duality to it there, which is why I think it is so effective as a framing device because it's almost like a red herring in a way. But, you know, it's flipped at the end and we find out that they're, they're in fact talking to an army of, you know, new Athenas essentially. And it's great. And, and that's that's classic Brad Bird. I mean, that's the kind of inventiveness I think we should be accustomed to from him at this point. I mean, he's always doing something that you didn't expect. And the end of this movie is anything but expected. I mean, I, 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 and I know it's it's a Disney movie and it's it's happy and it ends on, on such a positive note. But I didn't really see that ending coming, <laughs> basically. Even when I rewatch it, you know, it doesn't look like it's going to end up that way. And it's wrapped up really well. It is a very use. It is a very effective framing device. I think you're dead on with that. Yeah. And Will, you mentioned earlier that some of the themes or the messages of the film might be a little bit heavy-handed, and that might be slightly true. But what I love about this is that it's not overly serious. It's it's a light-hearted movie. It's funny. It's sweet, and it does have, in my mind, the right amount of heft and groundedness. So while I, I can see that there's definitely a message at the forefront that some people might feel is a bit heavy-handed, for me, it. The rest of the the lightheartedness and the fun and the comedy and the the snappy conversations between Frank and Casey or Frank and Athena just help to balance that out in just the right ways. Yeah, you know, you see the the self awareness this movie has when they cut to that montage of Casey in school and all of her teachers are talking about doom and gloom and climate change and you know conspiracy theories, just all this stuff and. So if there is a heavy-handed message, and of course, you know, in 2017 or I guess even 2015, if you're going to have any message of any kind that's positive, people are going to accuse you of being heavy-handed. And that's almost unfair uh, in a way because I still think it's very deftly handled, you know, by, by Brad Bird. I don't think it's, you know, you're beat over the head with it. The film is about hope, I mean, essentially. So, yeah, it, it is an unfair criticism. But again, you know, having those teachers... And having sort of like that juxtaposition of them all talking doom and gloom and they're teaching this to the children in, in school, I think that 
shows that the movie's definitely definitely self-aware enough to where it's it's not taking the material so seriously and that you can sort of have fun with it. And uh, one major last thing for me for the story is the idea of contrast. Um, you mentioned this a little bit, Will. There's the young Frank versus old Frank. There's Frank versus Casey. There's Nick's versus Frank. There's all these these juxtapositions of these characters who are very opposite from each other or are at least almost a future version of a character if they continue down a certain path. And even Tomorrowland itself has that contrast within itself. The first time we see it at the very beginning and then later when Casey has the pin, this place is vibrant. It's full of hope and invention and or, huh, innovation and liveliness and just pure creation. But then when we actually get to go see it, Casey points it out. It was a lie. It's now empty. It's barren and lifeless. And that contrast is so stark that it's it's jarring. And we as an audience want to go back to the fun tomorrow land just like Casey does. So it, I think, makes the message of the film more potent because we want the happy world for ourselves. And so we're going to go out and do what we can to regain a happier world. So contrast, I think it's really masterfully executed here by Bird. And I, I want to do... I do want to mention Mr. Lindelof. I don't know entirely what his creation are, but this was very much a collaboration between Brad Bird and Damon Lindelof from the very beginning. In fact, I think Lindelof was attached to this project before Brad Bird was. So don't want to undersell his contributions to the film either. And uh, before we move on to characters, I just want to mention a couple of uh, fun little cameos. You know, Brad Bird in the, the shop, there is an Iron Giant figuring. There's a Mr. Incredible action figure. There's Space Mountain when we get to Tomorrowland. And then I just want to say how cool the Eiffel antenna is itself. That That's one of the coolest scenes of the film to me, yeah. just because it, it's so fantastical and out of this world, but still within our world, which is just insane. The fact that, or at least the notion that the Eiffel Tower could be anything but a tourist attraction uh, <laughs> is just so much, uh, it's so fun, a conceit to even consider. It's absurd. That entire sequence is so absurd, <laughs> but that's why it works. Right. It's it's not a detriment to the film at all. It, it's intentionally no. silly and out there, and I love it for it. Yeah, I'm right there with you on that. That, in fact, that was one of the criticisms I've heard of the film was that the the Eiffel Tower sequence was was kind of silly, and it's like, well, that's kind of the point. <laughs> I mean, it's it's meant to be. It's absurd. It's ridiculous, and it's a lot of fun more than anything else. And I think that's what that that's what's really important about it. I mean, we're talking about a fictional world in another dimension formed by Edison and Eiffel and Verne and Tesla. I mean, why not just take it that next step forward and say they made the, the Eiffel Tower an antenna and teleporter? Yeah, if you're going to go in, <laughs> go all in. Don't just don't just half do it. Like if you're going to if you're going to go with that plot, that plot twist, like that's what I love about it. I mean, it, it's so over the top. There's a spacecraft within the Eiffel Tower that can take you to Tomorrowland. Hell yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> now let's go on to characters. So let's talk about Casey because she is our lead character. Britt Robertson, this is really sort of her breakout role before she really took the lead in anything else. This was especially what I associate her with. Um, looking at her filmography, she was in a few things before, but man, she really shines in this role as Casey. So what about just her character? What What do you guys have to say about that? I mentioned it earlier, but it's it's the fact that she carries the film. You know, she is our Luke Skywalker. You know, she's she's the 
the eyes through which we see this world and and you know she's us for the duration of the film so Britt Robertson did not have an easy job and and the thing that I really love about her is her I don't want to sound sort of lame but her strength as a character I mean she's she's always questioning information which is important you know not only in the real world but as as a principal protagonist I mean the fact that she's questioning everything she sees for example why does her dad have to lose his job at NASA you know so what she's asking in that situation is what can I do about it and of course what she's doing about it is highly illegal and and you know would get you probably 20 years in federal prison in the real world but in her mind there's got to be something I can do about this she's questioning the I guess the the situation to the point where she's trying to come up with her own solution. So I really appreciate that about her as a character. She's always asking the questions that are going to propel her story forward in a way that's useful to the plot. And, you know, even doing crazy things like hopping on a bus and going to Houston to go to a comic toy shop to find more information, you know, out about this pin. I mean, it's nuts, but that's her character. You know, she's going to do whatever she can to A, find out what Tomorrowland is and B, get back there if she can. So... I love that. I love that because she's the driving force of, of the entire film. And it could have, I mean, you know, if you had the wrong actress in that role, it could have just been an absolute disaster. But it isn't because she she delivers it so convincingly. Yeah, that's great. That's a perfect summation. <laughs> I think I don't necessarily relate to a character that much because when I was watching the movie, as a look, I come from pessimistic England. I will lay that out there. <laughs> so, so when I'm watching her, I'm just watching... An American. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'm just watching an American live their life and have their dreams and this idea that an American can can save the world and win the girl and always have a positive vision. And in, in Europe, unfortunately, we don't have that. So <laughs> when I was watching it, I, I, I didn't necessarily latch onto all those things. But the one thing that I, I did take away from her was how her optimism is infectious on other people. And again, as a European and speaking to two Americans right now, (laughs) that is what I love about your culture. It kind of brings out the best in me too. Um, and, and I think that for, for her, it's, it's really interesting because there's not many people that young that have that real strong sense of purpose. So I think she's a very interesting character for for young women, you know, watching this film. I think it's very... Today, I think there's a, there's a lot of young female characters that are all about the empowerment of women, and I am right behind that. But it, it is nice in her that she has such a strong purpose that is not just about her or any agenda. It is about, the <laughs> by the end of the film, it is about the world itself and saving it no matter what and just doing the right thing. And um, obviously, it, it is her that creates a, a glitch you know and that that frank sees and um and later hugh laurie's character and i think with that is is it just shows us that we always need these kind of people and i would argue that we always need these kind of people in stories too i think it's because of her that gives this story it's it's strength you know and i, and I love the the whole thing that she has with her her father that that story about the wolves you know, I think she even says at the end, you know, dreamers, we're looking for dreamers, anyone who will feed the right wolf to, to the new recruits. And I, and I love that. I love when there is a, is a story within the st- 
story because you start to understand the character a lot more. And um, yeah, you're, you're always rooting for her. Even when she is in the car, uh, freaking the heck out. Like, I, <laughs> I'm still, I'm, I'm with her in that moment. You know, she's kind of the... I don't know. The um, as Will said, you know, she she's kind of the character, the the lens that we look through when we look through the film. So she's she's super super important. Um, but um, yeah, there's definitely I feel stronger characters in this story. But um, yeah, I I will save my thoughts for a little bit later. <laughs> <laughs> she's an optimist, and one yeah. of the, the the very first time we actually get introduced to her, she gives us a flashback to her childhood. And she and her parents are looking up at the stars and she says she wants to go out there someday. And her mother poses a question. What if nothing is out there? What if you get out there and there's nothing? And she responds with, what if there's everything? And it's a great line. Yeah, that's the essence of Casey's character is what if I do this thing? What are the possibilities? They're far greater than if I didn't do this thing. And that's the way she approaches life. She She's a doer. She's She's a dreamer, as she says. There's this excellent shot of her standing at the, the soon-to-be-demolished launch site, and she is standing. There's cranes around. It's set for de- demolition, and she slowly looks up at the stars. And so she's standing in this this area where her dreams are sort of being crushed, and she's trying to do something about it, right? I, I love that shot because it's so subtle where she's standing in this dilapidated launch area, and looking up at the stars, thinking about how she still wants to go up there. Very cool shot. She's smart, both tech-wise and also with common sense and observationally. She's super smart, yeah. <laughs> right, as she says, I just know how things work. Uh, and it's not necessarily that she just knows how things work. It's that she looks around her, she watches other people, and she figures it out. She she doesn't just wait for somebody to explain it to her. She actively is watching and paying attention in order to know how things work. So I think that's really cool about her. And then, of course, you have her persistency and her resilience and her refusal to give up. When she's confronted with despair at the end of the film, she's in the machine that's showing the future and everything is ending in 58 days. This is a certainty. We know this. There's nothing you can do to change it. And when faced with that despair, she denies it. She really can't deny it. I mean, she just saw it with her own eyes. But she refuses to let this apparent impending doom make her sit down and do nothing. Again, that, that's just the optimism of her character. She can't accept a no-win situation. And She's Captain Kirk, yeah. Right, exactly. <laughs> through, through her perseverance and hope, Frank re-accesses that part of him that used to be just like her. As, as uh, one of you was saying earlier, when Frank was a kid, we get a glimpse of, of who Casey is when we see her later in the film. Kid Frank is the same as Casey, and he's just lost his way when we see adult Frank. And Casey helps him to find that because she's such a an immovable character in her optimism. And I love that about her. You know, I learned recently that that something that they, they say directors should do in any film is your opening scene should be a a metaphor for the rest of your movie. And that opening scene with Casey as a young girl is a metaphor for the rest of the movie. You know, what if there's everything when I get up there? That's her in a nutshell. You said it perfectly. I mean, that is her character. If you want to sum her her up in one sentence, that's it. And it's a great opening and it definitely sets her character up in the right way. Absolutely. And then we have Frank uh, played wonderfully by George Clooney. I wish he did more sort of lighthearted family films like this because what you were saying earlier, Will, is exactly right. This is sort of a different character for George Clooney and I like it a lot. Now, as for Frank, the character, 
as we've been saying, young Frank is full of hope. He's got these bright eyes. He's got this huge smile. He is so excited to be creating and imagining and doing things for fun. And then we see old Frank and he's cynical and he's pessimistic and he's nearly out of hope. Despite this, we see the snippets of his genius throughout the film. We see the the hologram dog. We see uh, the, the freezer fire extinguisher. Then we go and we have like Home Alone supersized uh, with his house invasion technology. And it, it's just really cool seeing sort of the potential this guy has, but he's sort of lost along the way the the utility of those skills. I love that analogy. Home Alone supersized. <laughs> no, it's absolutely. I mean, like like I said earlier, I, I love that we do get to see that he has become a truly brilliant inventor. But the application of what he's inventing is anything but, you know, what he was trying to do as a kid. I mean, it's it's really all negative stuff. I mean, I'm going to protect this fortress of a house I have. And, and that's all that tech serves to do is to observe the world around him and, and to protect himself. And, it, and it's a, a very, he, he falls from great heights, I would say, as a character, from when we see him as a child to when we see him as an adult. And George Clooney really nails it. I mean, really nails the nuances of, of that grizzled, you know, beaten down, every bit of optimism has been just drained out of him character. And it makes it believable when he does his, you know, how the Grinch stole Christmas, you know, I, I love Christmas moment at the end. I mean, it's, it makes total sense, you know. You see the you see the arc. Um, he's the backbone of the story, you know. If Casey is the, is the eyes, he's the backbone, and it's really great. <laughs> Every that's just my summation of everything about this movie. It's just really great. It's really wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> I like his relationship with Athena that we see in the film. We see that he's clearly been hurt in some way. We don't really know the the details until later in the film. And what what's sad about it in a way is that he tries to hide it. He's not open about this because it's a very sort of internal struggle. As as more is revealed, we sort of figure he loved her and he was hurt when he learned that she was not human and that that relationship was made impossible in a land of possibility, which is really depressing. She who always believed in him couldn't tell him the truth and that hurt him, understandably so, though we learn more about her and why later in the film. But one of my favorite Frank moments overall is when he first shows hope returning to himself. When they have gone back to Tomorrowland, I think it's after they've arrived in Tomorrowland, and he and Athena have this small personal moment while Casey is off to the side. And he asks her, why Casey? Why her? Why now? And he says, you think she can fix it? Can she fix it? Athena and it's not him just asking it's him sort of believing himself like what if this girl really is the one who can save us all from doom and destruction and it's the first time in the film where he he sort of set aside his cynicism wow that's what that was a lot of s's <laughs> he set aside his cynicism <laughs> and is looking towards a possible future in which Casey has saved everybody with her own optimism uh, so Casey, again, gives him his hope back and really prevents him from becoming Governor Nix later in the film. It's all in the subtlety and nuance. Yeah, it's true. I didn't I didn't really think about that. But <laughs> this, well, this is the beauty of being on Cinescope, Chad. I get to learn more. <laughs> no, it's 
It's interesting. I mean, obviously, it's set out that way. I think for me, it is quite difficult to talk about these these characters separately. I think they they all need each other, obviously, in in certain moments of the film, and they're kind of like the. I don't know. We can we can say they are a real holy trinity of this film. I think with with Frank, I do enjoy his character because I feel like he is the only character that really has an arc. Or maybe the opposite of an arc, because he starts off at a high point and then goes to a low point and then returns. The other characters really just have things happen to them. Or in the case of Athena, you know, she has a, a specific purpose. But he actually has an, an, an arc and changes throughout the story. And I think, you know, at least as a as a big, you know, I love character-based stories. I don't like things just to happen to characters. I like them to have reasons and motivations for doing things. And I think that's what I like about Frank so much. But um, not to jump the gun, but I think at least with Athena, I like her so much, not because she's an amazing English actress from my neck of the woods, but <laughs> I think she's, because she is that, but um, I think... And again, you know, I don't wish to mention Star Trek too much, but I'm drawing so many parallels from uh, data of Star Trek, you know, or like a lot of science, like science fiction. Her whole sentience is questioned so much during the film and, and, and Frank kind of, um, you know, questions it too and, and he maybe thinks less of her because she's not human. But she is as good as human in terms of what she feels. Her, her love for Frank, her belief in him and her own kind of hopes and dreams for the future and I feel Athena's content with her existence coming to an end by the end of the film because she's discovered Casey you know she always says about Frank that he needs someone to believe in him and I am fulfilling that need and she very much is, you know. When she's looking for someone, she's not necessarily looking for someone to to save the world, but she's she's looking for someone that will that will help Frank. And so she's kind of passing the torch on to Casey. And 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 I think that's that's why I think it's quite difficult for me to talk about these characters differently because I see them as just you know one flowing circle, one kind of Venn diagram. But yeah, I think at least with Athena, she is is definitely one of the the stronger characters in the film. But she she's really there to support you know the other two and and, and kind of a a matchmaker and bringing those two together. But um, I never thought I would love a child character in a film so much <laughs> with Athena. I think she might be my my favorite, especially after Jurassic World. <laughs> well, what what's crazy about Athena, well, I normally don't focus too much on actor or actress performances, but man, Rafi Cassidy is outstanding in this movie. Yeah. You normally don't expect this sort of level of performance from a uh, performance from a child but Raffi Cassidy just brings it in this movie in this role she is so cool and she really has this sort of otherworldly adult quality inside her even though she is very much a child it's shocking it's shocking man <laughs> the only thing I can compare it to and this is a weird comparison but is Kirsten Dunst in uh, Interview with a Vampire it's the last time I remember seeing a child actor really steal a movie I mean, she steals the movie. I, I Of all the things that I love about this movie, of all the performances that I'm astounded by, I am floored every time I watch this movie by Rafi Cassidy. Because like you said, it's it's that adult, sort of wiser, you know, wise beyond her years. Um, the fact that you can really believe that a young Frank fell in love with her. And, and, and not only that, but she's 
sort of the, the the keeper of of the secrets of Tomorrowland, and she's she's almost kind of played as almost you know a confidant of Hugh Laurie's character as well. Like she's his right hand man or woman or child or whatever. You know, I mean, it's she she pulls a lot of weight in this movie, and it's so believable. I mean, you believe everything that she says. She's the Dumbledore of this <laughs> this <laughs> movie. I mean, I. Wendell and I talk about this all the time because we're writing stories for our albums and you know one of the rules of of storytelling is you want to have a character out of whose mouth you get the necessary exposition that you also believe no matter what they say and that's that's Athena in this movie I mean she's the wizened wizard you know or or whatever I mean and and she's an 11 year old child it's unbelievable it's shocking when I watch the movie every single time I'm floored by her at the beginning, she says, I'm the future Frank Walker when she first meets him after he first comes to Tomorrowland. And she she really is. She literally embodies the promise of Tomorrowland and impossibility made possible. Absolutely. She's a realistic robot or audio animatronic uh, <laughs> insisting <laughs> or indistinguishable from a human. And how great is it that they bring in Disney anim- audio animatronics, right? That That's right. Disney's thing. They've been using them in the parks forever, and now they've gone a next level of realism. <laughs> and uh, they're, they're these super children, and they're Keegan-Michael Key and Catherine Hahn's characters in the shop, and all these weird, like, spy characters, uh, or spy-esque, uh, that are working to take down Frank and Casey. It's just so cool that they brought this Disney concept into the movie. Now, as for Athena as an audio animatronic, she... It's funny that she takes offense to being called a robot because a robot, just the term robot, is sort of too simplistic for exactly what she is. And so she has that sort of mild annoyance when Casey first calls her that. But then she shows remorse later at just not being human. Like she she has the quote at the end right before she dies. She says something to the effect of, I didn't feel sad to be a robot until you made me feel that way because she was developing feelings. Somehow this robot was developing feelings for a human because of his feelings and because of his rejection of her uh, after hiding the secret from him for so long, she now feels shame at being non-human. It's funny because all throughout the film, they talk about how Casey is special. Uh, Athena calls Casey special and talks about how Frank's special, but that, in that moment at the end when she's giving sort of her last moments to Frank, it's revealed that she was special too because she sort of had some sort of issue with her empathy drive, I think she says, and actually develops feelings for Frank and actually takes this beyond programming and makes it a personal situation between the two of them, between her and Casey, between her and her mission. It's about how she feels about the situation rather than just because she was programmed to go seek out people. So it's cool that not only are our human characters special, our robot audio animatronic character is special too. Mm. And it's interesting because she's she's perhaps the one that I relate to most, <laughs> which is fascinating. They've they've really done a good job. Yeah, I think that that actually is is going back a little bit to the story. Is what attracts me to the story most is because I think that there's a lot of very strong science fiction concepts in here done sometimes better than actual concepts in science fiction films. So I think that yeah, she she serves so many purposes for the characters for the story. But um, as 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 you said, Will, you know, you it's 
partly based on this brilliant young actress's performance. I mean, I can't wait to see her her blossom in Hollywood and, and continue to do great things. Um, yeah, we will see. Same here. Now, last character on my list uh, is General Nix, played by Hugh Laurie. So what do we have to say about General Nix? Go home. <laughs> we want optimism here. <laughs> well, first of all, I was telling Wendell before we started the show that I find it so ironic that that the director who who put such a spotlight on the ridiculousness of monologues in The Incredibles gives one of the best monologues I've actually heard in recent times to Hugh Laurie's character, General Nix, in this film. He's obviously not a mustache-twirling villain. I wouldn't call him a tragic villain or anything like that, but but there is an interesting element to him where he essentially finds our world to, to be a lost cause and says, look, you guys had your chance. I love the line where he says something to the effect of, you have obesity and famine, two different crises happening at the same time. How is that even possible? <laughs> you know? Right. And it's, you know, is it a heavy-handed message? I don't think so. I think, I think it's a very pointed sort of thing to say about society today. But you kind of sit there and you go, He's kind of right. <laughs> I mean, it's like, look what we're doing to this planet, man. I mean, depending on what side of the fence you fall on with, with human-initiated global warming, whatever. But, I mean, you know, his monologue is really impactful. And you do start to kind of go, well, wait a second. Maybe he's talking some sense here. So I love him as a villain in that regard. I love that he's just unimpressed with everything, you know, about Tomorrowland even. I mean, to him, it's just kind of another Tuesday. And I, I, I think that actually lends a, a level of realism to Tomorrowland that maybe otherwise wouldn't be there. So I love his character. I, you know, some people have complained that, that the film kind of falls apart in the third act. I don't think that's true. You know, you got to wrap it up and resolve it some way. So he does a great job. And, and I, I really like, you know, I, I'm not saying that he's a super layered villain, but I do like what is there. And, uh, and I love that monologue. And I'm not a fan of monologues usually. <laughs> this has been the plot all along, you know, you foolish people. You know, like I, 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 I love the way he delivers it. I love the way it's written. And I love his character. In that monologue, what's important to me is, one, it shows that, yes, well, all, all those things are right. That is what's happening in our world now, in their world, in the movie those things are happening. That's reality. That's all he's doing is stating fact. Yeah. And it reveals two things about his character. One, he tried to do the right thing to begin with. He, right. His initial reason for for broadcasting this this message and the doom of society and the world to the the other dimension, our dimension, the reason he did that was because he was trying to save them. He figured if he put it in their minds that this is what was coming, then they would do something about it. And the second thing it reveals is that when he sees that they aren't reacting the way he expected them to, he resigns himself to give up the same way they have. Yeah. Right? That's the irony of that monologue is he's he's chastising them for having given up and for just letting disaster happen to them when he's doing the same thing by not trying to step in and, and change anything about it. Both sides of the equation have given up. And in that sense, he's not unlike Frank's character in, in that sense. You know, he started out as an idealistic person with altruistic intentions and he had it slap him in the face, you know, and, and he's also been beaten down at this point in the movie. So there's a sort of similar arc that he takes, you know, to Frank's character, which I find interesting as well. Exactly. In my mind, he's sort of a, an alternate version of Frank mm -hmm. who maybe never met Casey. Yeah. Because this is a character who has lost all of his hope, all of his perseverance, that's gone. 
as well as his compassion for people, we we realize he, he, he just doesn't care anymore. He is living in his own dimension. That's not going to end. But hey, if I just live here with a whole bunch of audio animatronics, I mean, what kind of quality of life is that, honestly? Um, yeah. <laughs> and there's not going to be any creation happening in Tomorrowland, which is what it was designed for if it's just him there. So in my mind, it's almost a warning for Frank. This is what I could become if I don't take the path that Casey is offering me. And another thing I love about his character is you mentioned his relationship with Athena. Very clearly at the beginning, you would assume father-daughter relationship. And that dynamic changes throughout the course of the film. And there's this moment in which he's humanized just a little bit when he accidentally, or well, he's shooting at Frank and he accidentally shoots Athena because she jumps in the way instead. And he has this look of horror on his face, like, what have I done? And, uh, of course, Casey goes over and kicks the gun away from him. But it's just this one moment where he's really humanized in my mind. And he he really feels remorse for the first time, I think. Accidentally killing somebody who he's been close to for so many years. Uh, especially one whom he abandoned 25 years ago. So any other characters we want to talk about? I just want to say that I absolutely love the audio animatronics and how creepy they are. I mean, I have <laughs> definitely had many nightmares in, in, <laughs> about the little It's a Small World uh, animatronics, just those little guys. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then the, the the head guys who have that like weird cocky smile and they tilt their head a certain yeah. way with the, the big bright pearly whites. And then Keegan-Michael Key's though, cameo, if you want to call it that, is hysterical. Catherine Hahn's funny, too. It is too, really great. But Keegan-Michael Key is just so funny in this movie. That was the year where he had, like, 15 cameos in movies. Like, he was in every <laughs> movie over that summer. It was it was unbelievable. Peel was getting no love, though. I don't know why. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's go ahead and go into music, which I know we'll all have stuff to say something about. First... Great Big Beautiful Tomorrow. What a way to start a movie. If you want to yes. win me over, start your movie with Great Big Beautiful Tomorrow because I love <laughs> the carousel of progress in Disney World and Disneyland. That wins me over every time I rewatch this movie. It's just like, oh, yeah, that's how we start this off. And it is such a, a fun song. It's it's all about possibility and how anything is just a dream away. It's just a happy-go-lucky, look what we can do if we just put our minds to it kind of song. And again, it's like a metaphor for the entire movie, what it's going to be about. And, you know, you, you can't go wrong when you start with a, a, a Sherman Brothers song. I mean, that's <laughs> that's a that's a winning combination no matter what movie you're watching. I totally agree. I love that. That that was so unexpected, too, at the beginning. You're like, whoa, this is the New York World's Fair. Like, this is it. We're actually going to the New York World's Fair. And Michael Giacchino's there, by the way. Right. I was about to mention that. He's got oh, his... Go ahead. He's got his own little cameo at the It's a Small yeah. World attraction as Frank is sneaking behind him to get on one of the It's a Small World boats. So, yeah, quick little cameo right at the start of the film for Mr. Giacchino. And not the last time he would do a Disney cameo either. Sorry, say that one more time. And not the last time that he would do a Disney cameo either. Oh, yeah, <laughs> that's for sure. Um, now, what do we have to say about Mr. Giacchino's score? Oh, I've got lots to say, so I'll let Wendell go first. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, wow, where do we begin? Um, I suppose with some general points, it it just has such a sense of awe and wonder. And when I listen to this music, you know, I'm thinking not only about Tomorrowland, but, you know, Disney itself. I think this is a, a composer-director relationship that's not talked about enough. 
but it is one of my favorites. I think those two work very well together. I think Giacchino's yes. wherever he he is, you know, I I always feel like he's he's always kind of channeling that that same vibe as Brad Bird. You know, I think that the the marriage between the music and imagery is just excellent here it's really really good um you know i will just say about the score i i definitely appreciated it much more the second time around because the first time around even though i was definitely feeling it and, and it was hitting me in, in all the right places I, I was just kind of trying to figure out exactly what the story was and i was so just absorbed in the incredible world I barely even noticed it. I barely even thought about it. <laughs> and then the second time I listened, I watched it and listened to the score. The the opposite could not be more true. I was so engrossed in the music that I forgot about the story, <laughs> which is why, like you, Chad, I had to watch it a third time. Um, <laughs> but yeah, the 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 music is really really good. It comes from obviously a year where Gigino wrote some even more incredible scores, and I think for Tomorrowland. What I take most from it generally is that it captures a, a vibe across the whole film and and it's not necessarily just, you know, scoring specific characters. It's really trying to capture Brad Bird's vision, to capture the world building, to capture the, the optimism, um, the positivity that this film is soaked in. Um, and there's so many cracking little themes. You know, I don't even know where to begin and I am very mindful of stepping on uh, yours, Chad, or, or even your Will's uh, shoes. So <laughs> I will, um, I will shut up with my general points and 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 let you uh, talk about it a little better than I. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is the one thing I'll say about Michael Giacchino lately, and and I, I'm going to try to word this carefully because I don't want it to come across the same way. But if you watch a movie that he scored for me at least lately on first viewing, and you kind of said this, but. It's kind of innocuous. You know, I had this reaction when I saw this film. Um, I definitely had this reaction when I saw Rogue One the first time, where I wasn't blown away by anything specifically. That's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, you, you don't want to be distracted by what he's doing. But, man, on su just like the film, on subsequent viewings of this movie, the score is incredible. And you and I were talking about it earlier, Wendell. This, for me, is a top 10 Michael Giacchino score. Easily. It's incredible. Yeah. Every single cue is super inventive, super fun, especially, oh my God, penultimate experience, track number eight. Oh God, that is a four minute and 53 second, just smorgasbord of orchestral technique and just exuberance. I mean, it's just, it's it's one of the more kinetic things I've heard him do recently. And, you know, you mentioned his relationship with Brad Bird. And you're right, it is not talked about enough, and he elevates his work for Brad Bird in much the same way James Newton Howard elevates his work for M. Night Shyamalan's films. Like, you get those combinations of composer and director, and magical things happen. He is not yet whiffed on a Brad Bird score. They're all excellent, but this, I mean, this score is, just, you know, a lot of the hope and a lot of the, the sort of positive feeling you're getting while watching this movie comes from his score. There's so many cues where that's the case. A touching tale, world's worst shopkeepers. I mean, that's fun, you know, without the music, but you add his cue and it's incredible. I mean, it's just it's just a, a really great score. Wall to wall, by the way. All killer, no filler, top ten Michael Giacchino score for me. That's saying a lot. I mean, we we talked about how how much work he's done. To say this is in the top ten, that's really saying something for me. And and uh I love it. And we're gonna do a score guide on it. Actually, we decided today that we've we've uh, been long overdue on doing a score guide on, on this on this film because it really needs one. It's it's incredible. It, it, I've, I love it outside the film, too. I've, I've spun it recently, knowing we were going to do this show. 
And uh, I fall in love with it over and over again every single time I listen to it. I'm definitely looking forward to that score guide. <laughs> <laughs> well, you should submit to it, my friend. <laughs> oh, you know I will. It's yes. funny. Um, the past two years since getting the soundtrack and seeing the film, uh, when I plug my phone into my car speaker, it plays the first song alphabetically on the, the song list. <laughs> and so the very yep. first song alphabetically on my phone is a prologue from the Tomorrowland soundtrack. The very next song <laughs> alphabetically, a story about the future. The very next song, a touching tale. All three from Tomorrowland. It's just the way <laughs> things line up. And so there will be sometimes I plug my phone into my car and I'll just sit and listen to the first three tracks so I get a little bit of a taste of Tomorrowland before I change it to a podcast or to another soundtrack or to whatever else I happen to be listening to. Yeah. To use another one of the buzzwords that we've sort of been sticking to this episode, the score is just so optimistic, especially the main theme. The first time we really hear it is when Frank is introduced to Tomorrowland and he's actually falling through the sky sans jetpack at first and he escapes the clouds and he sees the city in the distance and then he falls back into clouds and during that that short space we hear a snippet of the theme and then eventually once he latches on his jetpack and he he's taking flight then the the main theme is back in full force and it flourishes and it is so beautiful. It's so happy. It's so optimistic. It is just everything that I would imagine from a place like Tomorrowland. Yeah. It, and it sneaks up on you too. I mean, you don't really appreciate it the first time you see the movie, right? Like you, you appreciate it the third or fourth time you heard it, but then you love it. You're just absolutely in love with it as a theme. It's really strong. And something I noticed during today's viewing is that it actually serves as sort of a pseudo love theme between Frank and Athena as well. Yeah. It plays between all of their tender moments, whether it's the flashback scenes between uh, young Frank and Athena or later when they're having the tender moment at the end of the film between Frank and Athena. It, it works as a sort of pseudo love theme for the characters as well as a theme embodying Tomorrowland itself, which is really cool. And then there's also a a sort of dark, ominous version of the theme that we hear when we first meet adult Frank at his house. It, it's just a, a dark twist on the same theme. It, it it just is no longer optimistic all of a sudden. I love that. Yeah, I noticed that today, actually. It's, it's nice to get that. I don't know what we can call it. Well, pessimistic. <laughs> Maybe, I don't know, dystopic version. Uh, yeah, it, it, it really is. It, it, it's amazing how much mileage he gets out of it. And, and really just the fact that I, I don't tire of it. I think musically it is quite simplistic especially moving just around two chords which are often used for feelings of this nature but that is not a bad thing at all i i think it it's it, sir it needs that it, we're not looking at a, a you know a score that needs to be super super complex here we, we're looking for something that like we said uh you know again how many times have we used the word uh optimistic this episode but <laughs> it, it reigns true um it really does i think the other thing outside of the theme that I that I loved was the instrumentation between the um, piano and the strings at times. Like, I don't even know what he's doing, but it, it works so, so well. I mean, uh, to give you an example, I mean, we, we talked about it a little bit, but um, yeah, the, the piano, I, I think he's using prepared piano in, in the track, World's Worst Shopkeepers. And Sounds like it, yeah. Such a nice interplay between the piano and the strings and the winds it's just it's so so good it really is and and i totally agree with you will i mean it it's it, something that 
yeah, like I said in the beginning of the show, you know, I didn't really notice it, but then the more time you 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 listen to it, the the more it grows on you. And yeah, I I really can listen to this outside of the film, despite its very lengthy twenty four tracks. Um, yeah, I do not tire of it one bit. It it is seventy three solid minutes of film music, like on album. It is so. I mean, it's wall to wall, and it is almost every track is different. That's the other great thing about it. I mean. It it's the most fun I think I've heard him have writing a score since oh god I don't even know up or you know just when you actually hear him kind of take the shackles off a little bit it's oh it's incredible man if it you know if you have begun to tire of some of the scores he's done and I can't imagine why why people would but I've heard that complaint you know going around the soundtrack community listen to this score and and remind yourself why Jacino is a master <laughs> because <laughs> he really is I mean it is wholly unique to this movie as well i mean a lot of what you feel in this movie is coming from michael giacchino yeah totally that may sound like a that may sound like a useless observation but but i really mean it i mean like the the sense of optimism the sense of fun you know uh, that that's an element missing in modern cinema i feel like in a lot of film music where the composer just amps the actual fun you know side of the scene you're watching making it more fun through his music the world's worst shopkeepers is a perfect example of that. So is a uh, boat. Wait, there's more. I love I love his track titles. They're amazing. Yeah, even if you don't like the music, you'll enjoy the track titles. <laughs> well, absolutely. But I mean, there is a sense of fun throughout all of this. I mean, even the action set pieces, just everything. It's just it's it's you know it's effervescent. This score. <laughs> That's the one <laughs> word I think I could use to describe it. It is uh, nothing if not bright and fun. So, oh man. I mean, like I said, 73 minutes of just really solid film music. Maybe the most solid film music we got in 2015, honestly. <laughs> there is one other theme that I wanted to mention because I was very familiar with this theme, but I didn't, I, w- I wasn't truly aware of how it was used in the film because uh, in the track, a prologue, you hear this theme. And so it's the very first thing I hear when I plug in my phone. Um, but it's Nix's theme. Yep. It's mm-hmm. it's the theme of pessimism and it's ominous and it's entirely lacking in hope. And it's actually in a sort of minor key, right? Uh, as opposed right. to the very major sounding uh, main theme that we hear throughout the whole rest of the film. So it, I didn't realize before that it was actually Nix's theme. And so at the very beginning, when he's sort of turning down Frank at the, the World's Fair or later at the end when Nix is back and uh, he, he's trying to kill and or execute export Frank and Casey and Athena into the real world and sort of just isolate them away from everybody else. It, it's the theme that we hear for Nix. It's just the the absolute lack of hope. And it it makes me think of that track in a whole different way because previously I just thought, oh, it's Tomorrowland music. And now it's like, oh, it's the bad guy music from Tomorrowland. And I, I really yeah, like he doesn't that. He doesn't give the game away in that track either. Like you, you don't, you get a hint, you know, that this might be a guy we shouldn't trust or shouldn't like so much, but he doesn't give the twist away by, you know, or anything like that with that opening uh, track. Like it's, it's very well disguised by Mr. Giacchino as per usual, because <laughs> he's, he's a master at thematic development. I don't think he gets enough credit for that either. Actually, you know, uh, we, we kind of dove into that on our rogue one score guide. Like it just, the way that he develops stuff throughout, you know, when it's a, when it's a film that, that, has his themes in it, not necessarily like Jurassic World or something like that, you know, where it's just his world, his sandbox. I mean, he really does a great job of weaving his stuff throughout and and developing it and giving it its grandest version at the end and all that. I mean, it's this is just a classic example of that. Probably my favorite track on the album is Pins of a Feather, 
which is mm. basically the last five minutes of the movie when uh, it's it's when Tomorrowland is restored and the dreamers are found and then they all stand united as they touch the pins together. Um, and yeah. it, it's just this this building up of energy and building up and building up and all look at all the cool things that are happening now that Tomorrowland is back and in full force. And then it quiets down as everybody touches the pin and then stands up in the field and they all look around and they realize that they're united and together. And that that is just one of the cool moments of the film, even though it's a very ending shot, basically it, it's, it's helping people realize they're, they're not alone and Jacino backs off. It's a lot more tender. And then it sort of swells into the end credits. And it, it's just, that is my favorite track on the album. I think, and it's actually probably one of my favorite Jacino tracks ever, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> he earned it. I mean, that's the great thing about it. It's earned. And we, you know, we talk about that a lot on our show, you know, when, when the grandest statement of anything happens, you know, it's the work that he's put in throughout the film to develop it and to vary it and to hint at things and hint at that. And now he gets to just blossom it, you know, like it blossoms like a flower and it's, yeah, it's a beautiful moment. And again, that feeling of that smile that I have on my face walking out of the theater or, or you know, pulling the Blu-ray out of my player or whatever comes I'd say 60% from this music, you know, it, it's, it does its job to say the very least. <laughs> now let's move on to our takeaways section. So Wendell, how about you go first? What is one of your takeaways from this movie, your, your themes, your relevance, whatever you want to call it? It's always a pleasure for me to see a previous generation's vision of the future more than our own right now, especially right now, because we're living in such an age of nostalgia and and Brad Bird's vision of a retro future, he's not the only person to do this, of course, but it's something we associate with Brad Bird. His vision of a retro future, kind of like we saw in The Incredibles, is just fascinating. It just creates such beautiful aesthetics in the film. It allows for the, the, the story to develop in different ways than we might expect because we're not necessarily thinking about our, you know, our own future at this time. So that's something that I, that I appreciate. But, but more to the point, I think that something I, you know, I, I did mention earlier was the idea of treating you know, uh, sentient androids or audio animatronics as humans, the fact that they still feel the same and, and, and you know, in the film, Frank feels that way about them. I think that's actually something that I like most because that's what I can see in our in our own future, something maybe becoming more important, you know? Not that I wish to predict the future at all, <laughs> but I have no idea where it's going. It's moving so fast. But um, yeah, that's that's what I like most about it. And, and, and certainly to um, tack on to that, something that <clears throat> my uh, parents often talk about living in between the two great superpowers that you were, um, America and Russia at the time, all, all this idea of, um, you know, the Cold War, mutually assured destruction, you know, I think that was something that, I, it's something that actually my, my father talks about a lot. And so I can't relate to him in that sense, but I think through this film I can. And it's interesting that we, you know, we always have a great, fear in the world whatever time we live in but uh, we you know just get through it <laughs> we survive you know <laughs> we somehow make it through um that is humanity's greatest strength we we survive um screw you dinosaurs um but, <laughs> but seriously i think that 
that's my biggest takeaway is just that because that holds true at, at any moment in our society. It doesn't matter what time we look at, even in the future, 100 years from now, there'll still be, you know, a very big fears in the world that we have to address. And um, it's kind of uh, nice that we get such a positive outlook out of it in this story. What about you, Will? Well, my takeaway is that, number one, this is maybe a bold statement, but never before has a Disney movie been so about what Disney, the company, has always proclaimed themselves to be about, which is reaching for a better future, you know, like Epcot or, you know, Walt's vision for the future. That message is loud and clear in this movie, and I think it's delivered very well. I think it's a message that's very important in 2015, certainly in 2017, that what if, you know, I love that question. Whenever Wendell and I get together, whether it's to do a show or to work on one of our albums, there's the what if phase that I love so much, the blue sky phase, you know, where anything is possible at that moment. And I think one of the most important lines of the film comes very early when it's spoken by a young Frank, when he says, when he's trying to convince Nick's why he should let him submit his jetpack, you know, and he says, well, you know, Nick's basically says, you know, if it's not useful, what is it good for? And Young Frank says, well, if I saw somebody flying down the street with a jetpack, I would think anything is possible. And that's important. <laughs> you know, that's, that's as important as whatever utility the jetpack could be good for. You know, fun is useful. Fun is, is creativity. It's, it's expanding your mind further than you even thought possible. I mean, that's what this film really at its core is all about. And I love that. And the other takeaway I have from this, and this is more of a real world takeaway, is that people shouldn't pay so much attention that it bombed, you know, at the box office. I think we certainly saw this with the Iron Giant. I mean, the Iron Giant was a huge, colossal failure. And look what it's doing now. It's a legendary film. I think this film will have a bit of revisionist history applied to it. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but soon. I, I mean, people, everybody I talk to loves this movie. Every single person I know. I mean, and, and most of us have discovered it after the fact on, on home video. So. I really hope it doesn't, and I don't think it will, because obviously Brad Bird is still getting like The Incredibles 2, and, and he's obviously still have, he still has quite a bit of box office cachet to his name, but I really hope it doesn't keep him from, from getting his hands on, on films like this in the future. Films that aren't necessarily sequels or reboots or whatever, just his own vision and you know a huge budget. I want to see more of him doing this, whether it's a sequel to Tomorrowland, which we, we know will never happen, obviously, because it bombed, but something else that you know, him and Lindelof get together and they dream up some other crazy concept. I hope Disney or somebody else gives them 250 to 300 million to make that movie because, I mean, this guy is one of our finest filmmakers and I just want to see him do more. I want to see him build his sandbox and play in it more with a huge budget. And, and this film is an example of what can happen when he's given that opportunity. So those are my takeaways from this movie. Your first takeaway, Will, actually ties into one of mine, which is just the, the idea of innovation for the sake of innovation, creating for fun or to inspire or just to learn. Uh, that That's what Tomorrowland, the place, was created for within this world. Quoting that same scene you mentioned, Frank says, can it just be fun? Like, why does it have to have a purpose? Can I just fly around on a jetpack and be awesome? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, th there's nothing wrong with that. And then beyond that, if somebody did fly over and... Uh, saw that somebody was flying on a jetpack, it, it could inspire somebody else to do something awesome. Tomorrowland itself is a place of impossibilities made possible by people who had ideas and worked on them. So you you have things like jetpacks or hover rails or 
interdimensional travel or multi-light year space travel is actually referenced in the film. That's not something that's possible right now for manned space missions is going multiple light years away. That's what Tomorrowland is. It's just about a place free of any bureaucracy or politics or anything like that. It's, it's just creating for the sake of creating and for the sake of learning and for the sake of inspiring, which I think is awesome. And another sort of takeaway I had was just the idea of how our future is what we make of it and what we allow it to be. That scene we talked about earlier where Casey's at school and all every single one of her teachers is ramming into the kids' heads. Our world is doomed. This is what's happening and we're not going to do anything about it. And the whole time she has her hand raised and when she's finally called on, she says, what are we doing to fix it? I love that. Right. And th- that that's that's the whole point. Casey sees the importance of taking an active part in the improvement of the world or it crumbles, right? If we don't do anything, it just collapses. So that also ties into the idea of the which wolf do we feed? Do we feed the one that's all about darkness and despair? Or do we feed the one that's about light and hope? If we want something done, if we want to see something created, we have to reach out and do it ourselves rather than wait for somebody else to do it. That's another thing that Frank says when he's talking about his jetpack. He says, I created a jetpack because I wanted a jetpack and I wasn't going to wait on somebody else to do it for me. I wanted it yeah. now. And so I, I built it. <laughs> and that's, that's awesome. So I, I really like that, that concept of how maybe because something is projected to turn out a certain way, like the, the, the monitor that is in Tomorrowland that is predicting the, the end of the world in 58 days that doesn't come to fruition because they do something about it. So if you don't like the way your future is looking, if you don't like the way your present is now, do something about it. Get out there and make a difference because you can. And that that's one of the big takeaways for me from the movie. I have one more, but do you guys have any other takeaways? The more I listen to you guys, the more I think of them. Um, <laughs> I think... Okay, go ahead. One one final um, you know takeaway I, I, I would say is that you know, when watching this, I, th- I think it's it's very um, idealistic in some ways. I think it paints optimistic people as 100% optimistic and pessimistic people as 100% pessimistic. And, and I think that with Frank being in the story, it shows that we can turn one way at any moment, depending on who is around us. But, you know, I'm not vying to be president here, but like, <laughs> be, be that person, be that center of change, you know, and I think that's what, what the movie says to me. It says, you know, um, be the optimist in the room, be the dreamer, you know, that, which is very, very uh, um, Disney, like you said, Chad. Well, I think that's sort of the purpose of the wolf story, too, is that yeah. it's not saying be one wolf or be the other wolf. It's saying that both wolves exist within us and the one exactly. that grows is the one we feed. So mm-hmm. I, I think we do have both pessimism and uh, optimism within us. It's just whether we want to be more of a Casey or more of a Nix, right? I, I think the the winner here is pretty clear. <laughs> yeah. Then my final takeaway: what is so important to me about this movie is just hope, creativity, perseverance, imagination, collaboration. At the start of the film, uh, this is actually a really subtle thing. Casey is wearing a John Lennon shirt, and what song does John Lennon sing? Imagine. What's a line in that song? You may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. And at the end of the film, all the dreamers are standing together, ready to dream and to accomplish. And that's a a real subtle Brad Bird nod. And a quick shout out to myself. (laughs) Back when the movie first released, I tweeted at Brad Bird uh, something about the John Lennon shirt and that quote from Imagine, and he retweeted it. So that's my claim to fame. (laughs) That's awesome. (laughs) 
but that is what this movie is to me. It's we are not in this alone. If you want to be an optimist, there's somebody out there who's out there being an optimist too. You're not the only one, right? That doesn't mean you're not special. It it just means that there can be more than one special person at any point in time. And you just have to go out and find them and work together to make the world a better place. And so be hopeful, be creative, persevere, seek out your imagination and collaborate with others to bring it to fruition. And that is what I take away from this movie. Most of all is just (laughs) go out and do things. Right. So, um, absolutely. I'm going (laughs) (laughs) right now, right now, right now. (laughs) Any final thoughts from you guys before we, we say goodbye. I love Tomorrowland. Seconded. (laughs) (laughs) And like I said, without this movie, Cinescope would not exist. So I am thankful to Mr. Bird and Mr. Lindelof and Disney for making this film and putting it out there because it instigated something. It served as a catalyst for something that's now a very big part of my life. So I'm thankful for that in a big way. And so are we because Cinescope exists now. So that's, <laughs> yeah. that's a win for us too. Well, thank you guys very much. And with that, that is the end of the official 52nd episode of Cinescope. And I want to take this opportunity one more time to thank everybody. Thank you too. And thank everybody out there listening. Because if, again, if you hadn't been listening this whole time, I would just be I'd have I'd be having great movie conversations, but I'd have a lot less of a reason to do it on such a big scale. So thank you, thank you, thank you. I love doing Cinescope. It's a it's a passion project for sure, and I'm looking forward to continuing it as long as I'm able. And looking forward to approaching a second year of the show and getting new people on, getting old people on, talking about more movies that we love. So once again, thank you. Now, contact for the show. You can find Cinescope at facebook.com slash Cinescope Podcast or at Cinescope Pod on Twitter. Remember, you can still rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. And if you have feedback or ideas, you can email the Cinescope Podcast at gmail.com. You can also use that link if you want to co-host the show at some point. If you have a movie that you love, think you can talk about it for a little while, let me know because I would love to get you on the show. Now, real quick, guys, if you'll humor me, I have a giveaway to take care of. So I've got the names put into this random generator. I'm going to pick three names going three, two, one. The first two will get one movie, your choice that we've talked about on the show up to this point in any format you want. You just have to contact me via email is probably easiest or Facebook if you're a Facebook friend with me. So first up, here we go. Jay Derbs on iTunes. You have won one movie. 82 Dre 82, you have won one movie. And one more for the grand prize, you get two movies. Dead Man Devil Man on iTunes. So those three people, if you're listening, let's say you have two weeks to contact me before your prize goes to somebody else. So make sure you contact me to claim your prize and get your free movies. Thank you all for reviewing the show on iTunes. That is still a great thing. If you want to help us succeed even more in year two, help us to reach a new audience, go to iTunes, rate and review, share the show, subscribe to the show. Anything you can do to help us just reach a bigger audience would be much appreciated. And then one more time before I hand it over to Will and Wendell, uh, I want to remind everybody about a new podcast coming from me and my friend Katie. It is launching in the very near future. I still don't want to give out an exact date, but you can listen to a preview episode now. It is called An American Workplace, and it is an office, The Office, NBC, 
rewatch podcast. We're going to be talking about the, the characters we love, our funniest moments, and just generally why we love the show. And we're going to be going two episodes at a time every week through the whole show. 201 episodes of the show. Looking forward to diving in every week to talk about one of my favorite TV shows. So check that out. Now, Will and Wendell, where can people find you guys online? Where can't they? Um, <laughs> and anyone who is a fan of soundtracks, who loves movie music, um, who isn't following us, I just sound theater on social media, um, or subscribe to our podcast, you are making a huge mistake. Huge. Huge. So, <laughs> huge. <laughs> huge. Huge. Uh, so you can find us at SightyourSoundTheater.com. That's theater spelled T-H-E-A-T-R-E. Uh, on that website, you will find our podcast uh, all about uh, film soundtracks, television soundtracks, media music, Disney music. We have a lot of shows on there, a lot of hosts. Um, we also have a Halloween music on there. There will be a new album released very soon, which we're very excited to share with you guys. And actually, you can even find the thoughts of uh, our host. Uh, our host. Our host, <laughs> you can find the thoughts of our host, Chad, here uh, on all the latest and greatest soundtracks, too. If you search for Chad's name in uh, in our little search bar, um, you will hear him appear on a lot of our episodes uh, talking about his favorite cues. So, yes, there we go. Go ahead and uh, enjoy. Yeah, one other thing we'd love to plug is we actually just did the music for the Foolish Mortals uh, Haunted Mansion documentary that would actually debuted in L.A., uh, right around, I'm sorry, in Anaheim, uh, the same week uh, as D23 and, and had a huge reception. So if you're a Haunted Mansion fan, definitely be on the lookout for that. It was uh, directed by James Carter III and produced by Ryan Grulick, and it is an absolutely fantastic look at Haunted Mansion fandom, and Wendell and myself did the music for it. So if you like our music, you'll probably like the movie too, I, I would imagine. It's uh, the same the same ilk as our, as our fun, macabre, little twisted thing that we do every Halloween. So definitely check that out if you are into such things yes make sure to seek out sideshow sound it's a great show like i said i've been listening for nearly three years now which is crazy to think about because time <laughs> flies a lot faster than i'd like it to sometimes seriously <laughs> <laughs> but uh as you said you I i've been on sort of a few episodes of sideshow sound you guys are actually working through the parts of the caribbean film scores right now for score guides and so i have submitted uh to those so if you want to hear Additional thoughts on film music from me and, of course, from Will and Wendell here, uh, the real pros, because they're composers, go to Sideshow and check them out. Thanks, man. <laughs> <laughs> the best place to find me is on Twitter at Chadadada, that is C-H-A-D-A-D-A-D-A, and on Facebook.com slash Chad.Hopkins. And all the show notes and all the contact information, including for the new show in American Workplace, can be found at TheCinescopePodcast.com. That is all this week. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Will and Wendell and the audience. It's been awesome going a full year and having you guys on the show. It was our pleasure, and here's to many more years, my friend. Yeah, thank you, and congratulations. Now, where's the champagne? <laughs> <laughs> soon, soon. <laughs> now, thank you, everyone, for listening to episode 52. I'm Chad Hopkins. This was Cinescope, and we'll be back next week with episode 53. Have fun and celebrate movies. Mm -hmm.